think we're talking about. It's culture, of course. Absolutely. And you're part of it. <laughs> that's a scary thought. Yeah, that's right. You can't escape it. Uh, you just can't get out of it. Uh, you are part of culture. And, uh, you know, culture has many manifestations. Uh, for example, uh, a couple of nights ago, oh, would you please give me that echo chamber once again? I Hello, one, one two, two, three, three four. four, four. I'll, I'll take you home again, again Kathleen. Kathleen. That's nice. Oh, that's not. It isn't that good. It's, 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 I just don't. Uh, I hate sycophants. Now get off. Get off my feet, will you? This crowd comes out here and starts kissing my tennis shoes. That's ridiculous. But uh, I will say this. Uh, I am surprised to note that not one of my culture vultures out there has been able to tell me what country correctly that song is truly identified with. I'll take you home again, Kathleen. And I'll give you a clue. It is not, I repeat, not Ireland. <laughs> All right, I'll tell you. A very disappointing fact. That song was written in Plainfield, Indiana. Plainfield, Indiana, which, by the way, is also very famous as the home of Forrest Tucker. So you can see they've contributed a great deal to American culture. Well, dream again. Da -da -da -da. What uh, famous novelist, what famous American novelist wrote the words to a famous tune also dealing with Indiana? Oh, the moon is bright upon the Wabash, Dee Dee. La da dee 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 dee. Fields of new mown hay. Oh, the moon. La da dee 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 dee. You know the song? Yes, you know, and it was a very famous, probably one of the ten greatest American, one of the ten great American novelists wrote the lyrics to that. You don't know anything about the rivers of Indiana, do you? The Calumet, uh, the entire region is named after that river. That's called the Calumet region, which is in the northern, the northwestern corner of Indiana. And it also includes that little corner of Illinois. That's called the Calumet region. Now, uh, it was named after that river. Have you ever seen Calumet baking powder? Okay, that's named after that area, believe it or not. And uh, what is on the can of the Calumet baking powder? Well, there's a picture of an Indian. Correct. That is a Calumet Indian that is shown on that picture. And uh, that is the name of a tribe case you're curious. It's also an Indian word for peace. Chicago is an Indian word. Chicago. What Indian tribe was this involved with? Chicago. Uh, in the Indian term, it was Chicago. It Chicago is the way. C-H, like a little line, G-U-G. Chicago. It was uh, not uh, really truly Chicago, but the way they pronounced it, uh, the early settlers heard them say this, and uh, they were always saying that, 
and it, it, did, it designated the place where this city grew, uh, the word. And so they began to use that word. Uh, the settlers used it because it was a, it was a natural thing. Uh, it was already called that when they came there. I'll give you a clue. The word begins with the place where... What? Oh, that's right. The place where wild onions grow. And that's very true. As a matter of fact, all through the area there, one of the things that uh, in that area, this is the Sandy Lake country there, wild onions do grow there and still to this day grow there. Uh, I, I lived, uh, you know, very short distance from that area, right around the bend of the lake there, and we used to go out all the time and pick wild onions. And they still do that. So don't think I'm talking about the old days. I was just out there, and they still do. Indian culture was much more part of our life. I'll tell, did I ever tell you about the time? I, I, I still kick myself when I think of one of the things that we did that I've never forgotten. There's a big swamp out there. See, that's very swampy country. Used to be lake bed. Uh, in fact, most of northern Indiana and that whole area of Illinois, at one time, Lake Michigan was a much larger lake than it is now. And the lake extended almost down to uh, Indianapolis. Uh, so that whole area at one time was underwater. And as the water receded over the millennia, uh, these are glacial lakes, and as the water receded, of course, the bed uh, came up and uh, it became habitable and people moved into the area. Uh, but uh, parts of that still remain swampy, which, you know, the lake has not completely receded from it. And there's a whole swampy area down there. And I grew up living right next to that huge swamp. It's a fantastic swamp, and it, it still exists. It's a, it's a tremendous swamp that's about, oh, I'd say seven, eight miles uh, in one direction, about 12 miles in another, and it's, uh, it's really interesting country. Now, that type of swamp is, uh, is a lake swamp, which is a difference from a, a, a creek swamp or a backup swamp or a seepage swamp. This is a, a lake swamp. And the bottom of the, this swamp is sand. It's not uh, mud, it's sand. So it makes a very interesting kind of swamp. Now, uh, one day, uh, we used to go into the swamp all the time, just the way kids today go to Central Park. We used to go to the swamp, and the swamp was very close. It was like a block and a half away. You just walked down into the swamp. Well, uh, as, as we would go into the swamps, we would go back out into the swamp. The swamp consists of a whole series of hillocks. Is this interesting to you or not? It consists of hillocks, little clumps of land that rise above the general water area there. So you could go from clump of soil to clump of soil, and you could get deep into the swamp, and nobody ever went there because it was deep into the swamp. And uh, there were all kinds of, uh, well, there were reasons. For one thing, it was one of the few areas around there where the, uh, the cottonmouth was very popular. Well, he wasn't popular. <laughs> he was very common. The cottonmouth. You've ever seen a cottonmouth? You've heard of them. Uh, have you ever seen or heard of the timber rattlesnake? Well, we had timber rattlesnakes back, the very deadly rattlesnake. Uh, there was also uh, other things in the area there. At one time, that was one of the last strongholds, uh, one of the last areas outside of certain portions of the far northwest where the timber wolf still lived. Uh, there were other things out there. For example, uh, uh, we used to see uh, horned owls. We'd see, uh, have you ever seen the great horned owl? 
This is an unbelievable sight. If you've never seen a great horned owl, you have never seen why certain birds play a mystical role in primitive people's religions. Uh, this bird does look like a curious ghost from some other world. And he's rarely seen before dark. And that's another thing that adds to him. He'll be seen at dusk. And you'd see a great horned owl all of a sudden swoop over the water. And they're big. They're great. That's why they're called the great horned owl. And they have these huge yellow staring eyes. And they make an odd sound. Uh, it's, it's really almost like a true hoot. It goes, hoo, hoo. They'll go. And uh, you'll hear that thing echoing. And it has a long piercing echo. And so you can hear for miles the sound of a great horned owl. Why? I don't know. It's 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 curious sound. It sounds it sounds uh, at one time it will sound soft and quiet, but strangely enough, it has come from miles. <laughs> and even when you're near it, it's quiet. But it pierces. It goes for a long distance. And so the the owl will go. Woo, woo. Now what he's doing is warning other great horned owl male owls away from that territory. And he is a deadly hunter. Uh, the great horned owl, uh, we would see him swoop down suddenly, and you would see him fly, and he will have a rabbit. He will fly with a rabbit in his talons. And uh, we saw this all the time. It's a great educational sight. <laughs> I mean, teaches you that some got it and some ain't. And, uh, and uh, also we would see, among other things, one time we saw the great northern owl, or the white owl, which is an owl rarely seen in the United States. This is an owl that when, uh, when standing will stand maybe two and a half feet to three feet tall, and he's snow white, the snowy owl. A spectacular sight, and a ghostly sight. Uh, they'll stand quietly, and then suddenly you'll see them just slowly, they'll just plane up. They, they have a great way of flying. <laughs> you want to hear it? Listen, I'll tell you. Uh, what brought this up? You know, people tend to think that nature is a thing of the past. They really do. Uh, it's funny. We've become so, uh, I suppose, urbanized in our urban areas. We're not aware that between the urban areas in America, which are getting more and more concentrated, not spread out, but concentrated, that between those areas often lie trackless wilderness. I mean, and where you really see true wilderness animals. Now, this particular swamp, if you want to know more about it, one time we were out there, um, um, it was about five of us, me and Schwartz and a couple of other guys, went out to the swamp. We used to always go to the swamp. Now, why do we go to the swamp? Well, because of what was there, and, and it was an exciting place in a nutty way, and we just sort of accepted it as part of life, that's all. It never would have occurred to me that at one time I would be telling people about living next to a swamp, and it would be almost like telling them you grew up next to the Sahara Desert. It's very, very exotic to them. Well, we used to go, swamps have, more than any other place that I know of, have drastic changes in the seasons. The seasonal changes are fantastic in a swamp because, for one thing, uh, you have a great frog population. And the, the frog really is a seasonal creature. I mean, in one time, he's a little polywog, and the next thing you know, he's He's another thing, and so on down the line. We used to go seining for them. Uh, and yeah, we would catch polywogs. We never went for the live frogs, the biggies. 
we went down there for although a friend of mine did a friend of mine uh, sent his way through college in that very swamp uh, going out after frogs for frog legs and also for for uh, lab use and this guy used to go out on a Saturday you go out at night for frogs of course he'd go out at night with uh, and he had a license he had to be licensed for this and he would go out uh, with uh, with a light and he would net frogs with a butterfly net you, you, you catch them biggies and uh, he would catch these big frogs and one night he had a terrible experience with the frogs that he had a gunny sack now he was a med student and uh, of course he spent a lot of time studying he was like 27 hours a day working on the on the med courses that he was taking and all weekend and large amounts of time during the week he would go out to the swamp to uh, to catch frogs which he sold to the lab well one night he was out there after like 174 straight hours of anatomy or something and he's out in the swamp in the dark and uh, he has a raft is what he used and he was pulling himself around on the raft there and he was catching a swamp of frogs biggies and these are big ones I'm talking about frogs that go maybe a pound and a half the big ones bullfrogs is what he was catching and uh, he, he had a special order they wanted these bullfrogs they didn't want the little frogs they wanted the biggies so that's a special order and it costs a little more you know and the, you know the kind you ever hear a real bullfrog out in the swamp oh boy they go like give me a little echo chamber I can give you a bullfrog then there's a long pause and he's waiting see to see if he gets any answer anybody's going to get smart with him see that bullfrog is sitting there and where are they sitting well they're sitting right on the edge of the water see a bullfrog is always ready to depart for other parts and he is sitting right on the edge of the water usually uh, concealed under uh, overhanging sawgrass something like that and uh, he's he's announcing that uh, two things he's announcing for any male who wants to come around and knock the chip off his shoulder he is perfectly willing to deal with him. a frog is a very aggressive creature did you know that very very on the other hand he is also announcing that he is now standing at stud and if there's anybody interested within a four mile area he is ready <laughs> you don't know what the term standing at stud means that's not a poker game in this case although it can be nevertheless he is under that that little uh, overhang of sawgrass and he and he has a specific pattern they have what they call the two beat pattern and the three beat pattern sometimes this is a single beat pattern did you know that uh, that a, a, a real frog aficionado can tell the difference between uh, there's a lot of subtle differences in the way they call but uh, a, a standard uh, American North American bullfrog uh, standing at stud usually has a two-beat note something like this he's standing at stud and he's right he's just sitting there waiting all right now then there's the kind that gives a slight moo have you ever heard that time <laughs> Oh, 
that's another variety, and it's an interesting sound. But nevertheless, you hear all these various frogs out there, so uh, you get to know them. I mean, you get to know all the various sounds, and once in a while, a really big daddy frog will move into the neighborhood, and uh, he will announce this, and all summer you will hear this same frog, and often you will hear him for several years running. That same frog announces his presence. And so when you live next to a swamp, you learn all these things. Well, tonight, I have to apologize to you. We are speaking of things that Norman Mailer does not even suspect exists. And uh, we're going to tell you a little more about, <laughs> about life out there where the animals and the creatures crawl. Uh, they were known as varmints. You know, the word varmint here, you know what a varmint is, a varmint. Uh, yeah, they even have things called varmint guns. Yes, a special type of gun you use to go after varmints. And uh, there's, uh, a varmint is an animal that raises holy hell and does nothing in return. He's a varmint. He comes in, steals your chickens. I've seen varmints steal tires right off a guy's cars. Did I, I, did I tell you about the time that the possums ate the tires off the Oldsmobile? Mr. Anderson's oh, you don't... Uh, yes, I saw a guy one time come out so damn mad out of his garage... He had a brand-new axe, an axe handle, you know, a big handle. A brand-new axe, beautiful axe. And, and, and a, a porcupine ate the handle right off of his axe. And he got so bugged, he came running out of, the, out of the garage, hollering to his wife. He kept hollering, Emma, get, get the gun, get the shotgun, I'm going to get that damn possum. And he was yelling, see. And, and it, was, it wasn't a possum, actually, it was a porcupine. And he says, I'm going to shoot that damn porcupine, I'm going to eat him. Out there, uh, suitable revenge on an animal is when you eat him. <laughs> you eat him. You never thought of that, did you? And uh, he went out and tried to, tried to get that porcupine. By the way, porcupine makes fairly decent eating, in case you're interested. But uh, nevertheless, uh, yes, he's a very, uh, in fact, they call him uh, the pork of the woods. Uh, pork, yeah, it's, it's exactly what the phrase comes from. All right, and uh, he's a little, he's uh, very uh, pig-like, a pork porcine, and an uh, interesting little animal. Don't get too close, but uh, he's a, there's a lot of animals you shouldn't get too close to in the woods. I'm just going to warn you, very many animals. Uh, stay, stay very clear of any, any bear that you happen to see. Do not get near any bears. We had bears in the swamp. Did you know that Jersey has bears? I'm serious that there is a population of bears in Jersey, real bears. Black bears, correct. There is no such thing, though, as a harmless bear. Contrary to popular opinion, that the bear can cause all kinds of excitement, uh, especially if you get between the bear and its cub, or if you get uh, between the... If you startle a bear, if you, and it's easy to do that. Uh, if you're, if you're, people have come out on their back porch and just without any warning, they'll flip on the back porch light and startle a bear, and uh, he will do one of two things. He will disappear into the darkness, or you will disappear into the darkness. I would suggest <laughs> that uh, if a bear is moving towards you, move fast. Don't say, oh, isn't he nice? Look, he's friendly. He's coming over here. He wants to be petted. Zap, no foot, uh, just like that. Uh, but uh, I don't. I don't want to discourage you about the outdoors. I want to tell you though about my friend with the with the uh, 
with the frogs. Great moment. It was. It is a legendary moment. They still speak of it. In fact, folk, folk singers sing of this moment uh, as they. Yes, you hear folk singers out there. They sing of this moment. It's called the Night of the Frogs. It's a song. It's a great song, and it happened to this guy who lived in our neighborhood. It actually occurred. He was a student and a uh, very, very nervous guy. He could not, uh, the worst thing that can happen to him was have an embarrassing moment. Well, he went out this night after 174 straight hours of work on the organic chemistry, uh, pharmacology, other little goodies like that. Uh, his head was uh, filled with uh, all kinds of equations. He'd been studying in no sleep, no sleep for weeks, and now he's out in the woods hunting big bullfrogs, which he sold for roughly a buck a piece, these biggies. And so if you got 40 or 50 bullfrogs that night, that's not bad for a medical student out in the woods. So he, he, uh, he's out there, and now he's had a good night. It was one of those nights in June when the bullfrogs are out and the moon is right and the mosquitoes are right. Everything has to be right to get the frogs out. And uh, he's hit the double jackpot. He has a gunny sack full of frogs. He had about 150 of them. And they're all in his gunny sack, which he had, uh, he had a big heavy rubber band around the top of this thing. He flings it over his shoulder, and he comes back out through the swamps. At that point, he, uh, he did what he always did. He waited at the bus terminal there. There was a bus stop. This was not out in the wilderness. You've got to remember, the swamp was the wilderness, but there were roads that went along it. And uh, it just so happened that there was a road that went along there, and there was a bus stop, and there was a bus that came past there every night, say like 11.30 at night, something like that, the last bus. And so he's waiting for it. He finally gets on the bus. He climbs aboard the bus, which he had done many times in the past. And this bus was always loaded because a lot of people coming back from the last show and that kind of stuff. There's about maybe 30, 40 people on the bus. And he gets on the bus and, and goes to the rear of the bus where he always sat. And he sat down in his, uh, his uh, smelly clothes, which smelled of the swamp. And remember, he is a famous medical student, and he's a very, very nervous guy. He's sitting in the back of the bus. Everything's cool. And the way he told it later, I'll only, now I have to revert to another tense. The way he told it later... He was not even aware of the fact that he had fallen asleep. He said that he was so dead tired, this is how it later came out in court and everything else, he was, he was so dead tired, he did not know that he fell asleep. You know, you can sit in the back of a, you can sit down and you know you're sleeping, you doze off. He sat down there and he said the next thing he knew, the next thing he knew, was thousands of people screaming and running around. The bus has stopped. He didn't know where the hell he was. He jumped up and he starts to run around with the crowd too. They're all yelling and screaming and hollering, oh, probably. He figured the bus was on fire. Who the hell knows? They're running around and he, he people, old ladies are fainting and guys are, are, are jumping out of the windows. The bus driver is yelling and the police are coming and you know the, the squad cars are arriving. They're screaming and yelling. He runs to the door and everybody's yelling. He's poured out and he sees pouring out of the door thousands of gigantic bullfrogs are leaping out of the out of the bus door and they're jumping all over the old ladies they're carrying her. <laughs> he had fallen asleep and his sack 
had fallen down right beside him. He had it right down there. He had it tucked under the seat, see? He, the sack fell down like that, and somehow the rubber band came off, and thousands of frogs decided to leave, and they didn't want any more of this bus riding, and they were going back to the swamp. Well, my friend was knee-deep in swamp, frogs, ladies screaming, guys fainting, people got their glasses broken, one guy lost his shoe, they never found it, it was a terrible scene, and he wound up in, in the slam that night with a half, all he had was his gunny sack left, and he had a couple of frogs that were brought in as evidence, and he was accused of a, of a vile and malicious prank. How would you like to be sitting there accused of a vile and malicious prank? I think the word vile adds a lot to it. He was accused publicly of a vile and malicious prank that he had loosed these frogs on purpose in the bus to cause confusion and uh, fright and various other things in the poor unsuspecting bus passengers, and he was up for a big charge. Well, the judge sat up there. And uh, my friend was in the court, see, and he sat up and he says, you know, it's the damnedest thing. He said, I can't explain it to you. He says, but these frogs, they're in the court. He says, with everybody sitting around, they started to, to, to do what frogs always do, you know, going, unk, unk, unk. And, the, and the judge is getting madder and madder, and the frogs are yelling. The guy laid a $100 fine on him, gave him a 30-day suspended sentence, and he said, from that day on, his life was changed. Now he's a jailbird. He's got it on his record <laughs> wherever he goes. <laughs> and, you know, he's a very famous physician now. He's a surgeon. And he said that he applied at one of the very famous Midwestern clinics, you know, for argument's sake, let's say the Mayo Clinic, right? And uh, he applied there, and, of course, they investigated him. And uh, the guy sat down with him uh, in the personal investigation. He says, Doctor, we find that you have impeccable credentials. And uh, your your professional achievements have been very impressive, and uh, that that new suture that you invented, the Grubbage suture, is a world famous. But uh, we do have a curious uh, report. Of course, obviously there must be two Grubbages. Uh, <laughs> we have a Grubbage that was charged, uh, <laughs> hey George, of a of a vile and malicious trick and uh, was sentenced to 30 days, a suspended sentence. Obviously, it's not you. We just thought we'd check. See, yeah, it was me. He says, it was you, Dr. Grubbage? He says, yes, it was me. It was a vile and malicious trick. I, I, uh, yes, I, uh, 30 days. Uh, it was uh, suspended. They didn't, they didn't make me serve the time. I was suspended. Uh, it was, you know, a seven-year thing. It's okay. I'm clear now. I mean, I could pull another one down. I wouldn't, uh, you know, get the... The doctor says, well, excuse me, Dr. Grubbage, we'd, uh, we'd like to know what your vile and malicious trick was. He says, well, um, I had 150 frogs, see, and uh, I was sitting in a bus. It was a number two bus, and uh, I had them in a gunny sack, and, uh, yeah, they didn't give him the job. <laughs> no, wait a minute now. I just want to tell you, it came out happy, though. Uh, the incident is now being made into a Walt Disney movie. So it's, it's all right. He's, he's, uh, he's come out of it clean, and uh, he's survived. And uh, he's being played by a nine-year-old red-headed moppet. 
As you know, Walt Disney, all pictures are about nine-year-old red-headed moppets with freckles. Right, you know that. And of course, the bus driver's an evil guy who wants to kill all frogs, you know, played by a... Uh, uh, what's his name, Lloyd Nolan? He plays all evil guys that want to kill frogs, the kid's own, right? Okay, and Haley Mills plays the lovable, cuddly school teacher. So you can see the whole script, right? Uh, okay. Kid falls asleep over his geography book. His mother's dying because she needs the serum, and he's out in the swamp uh, catching frogs to buy the serum. You know the whole thing. Okay, it's going to be a, it's a happy ending. <laughs> I didn't tell you the real reason I was going to tell you this story, did I? Well, I better not lay it on you now. It's too late to tell you the whole story, and I want you to sleep easy tonight. Okay. Did you ever see uh, Did you ever see water moccasin? I did. I caught one one time at a gunny sack scene. We used to use gunny sacks for every possible thing. George Doppler's house, as a matter, ha matter of fact, had gunny sack tablecloths. His mother made them out of gunny sacks. They were very poor people. <laughs> they were, actually. George used to wear gunny sack pants to work and to school every place. But the, I one time caught a, a water moccasin inadvertently. I was after uh, polywogs, and I caught a water moccasin in my gunny sack. And that was the day that Schwartz set the freeform 100-yard dash record. He was invisible. He was a blur. It was unbelievable. Right up there.